Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Fluently Forward. I am so excited to have on a fabulous guest today on Fluently Forward. We have Amy Chan of the Breakup Bootcamp series. Welcome to Fluently Forward. How you doing, Amy? I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm good. Well, you are a recent addition to the lovely Cake Media Network, and I'm so excited that we have gotten the chance to talk a little bit more because you don't know it, but I was parasocial with you a couple years ago when I was going through a tough breakup and listening to you. You now have a podcast of your own, which I'm going to be featured on one of the upcoming episodes. I'm very excited for that. But listening to you talk to so many different podcasters about the science and the psychology of a breakup and how you get through with it and why you created this breakup boot camp, which is such a cool concept. You, you truly were the one person responsible for helping me get out of my breakup. And I'm sure that like you hear that all the time from people. I mean, you must you must hear that all the time, right? Yeah, because they don't teach us this in school. And we're just flailing when it comes to relationships. And it's one of the hardest things. And so when you understand that there's science behind it, when you understand what's happening on a neurochemical level, uh, you can make better decisions. You can learn the tools so that you don't have to suffer for so long. Yeah. And and you started this, um, basically, it's a breakup boot camp, and it's a retreat that you can go to after you've basically gone through a breakup. And you have all of these like invited and esteemed speakers, and they help kind of teach people. What does that retreat look like for people who go to this? Yeah, it's four days in nature. And I bring in a team of experts from psychologists, behavioral scientists, sex therapists. I even bring in a dominatrix who specializes in the psychology of power dynamics. Because that's very common. Uh, a relationship starts off even and then somewhere along the way, one person loses their power and then they're just grasping for it for the rest of the relationship. And it's like pretty intense. It's 12 hours of programming a day. And there is this formula that we apply to help people process the emotions, the grief in a healthy way. And then most importantly, pattern interrupt, because it's never just about the X, there's recycled pain. And if we do not understand what are those subconscious beliefs and patterns that have been kicking around before that ex came along, we will just keep repeating the same emotional experience with other people in the future. Mm. It's It sounds like such a per. It also sounds like something that everybody should go to, even if you haven't gone through a, a breakup or you're not, you know, currently experiencing that. But everything you say, like, I really cannot recommend all of your content to folks anymore because I just remember when I was going through my last breakup, I would listen to some of these, like, I'm not going to name them, but some kind of fluffy podcasters, and they would be like, "Oh my God, just like." you know, eat the Ben and Jerry's and like go out with your girlfriends and like do yoga. And I was like, you don't understand. Like, I can't eat anything. Like I haven't eaten anything for days and I don't know why I'm like celebrating when I drink a glass of orange juice and maybe you end a relationship and like you can't go out with your friends because it was a codependent relationship. So you kind of lost all of your friends or maybe like there's just all of these things that I feel like a lot of people treat breakups. Um, so trivially and they're not like they're very deep and emotional I feel like there should be a hospital wing dedicated to them and you were kind of the only person that I listened to who went about it in that aspect a question for you is do you ever get tired about talking about love and breakups or is it something that's kind of always evolving no I feel like because I've my heart's been through the ringer since I've been a child um and I remember like struggling so much I was love of I was like a love addict, anxiously attached, codependent, and all of the heartbreak. I remember saying to myself, like, there must be a bigger reason for this. I didn't know at the time what it was. I never thought I'd grow up to be a breakup expert, but I always knew. And I thought, like, if I could help another person feel a little less un a little less alone, a little more understood, then this is success for me. Then this this pain is worth it. And so I just feel like this is my mission. And um, yeah, I feel like there is a lot of like performative girl power out there where mm. it's like, you know, just get over him and like, you deserve better. Well, okay, but like, how the hell do you do that? Because positive affirmations actually can actually do more damage when you don't believe it. And I, I think it's, it's irresponsible <laughs> to be um, sharing uh, some of the advice out there that actually can backfire and make someone feel ashamed of their grief. Um, yeah. Oh, you know what? Oh, my God. The advice I would hear from people like, you know, you're going through a breakup. They're like, just go out and like party and like 
don't think about it for a night. I'm like the way that I've had 200 calories over the past two days and I'm on the verge. You want me to like black out and then be hungover and then feel worse and miss my ex even more? Like there's so much advice people give and I'm just like, I don't know. We ended up, um, I wrote an ebook. It was like 95 pages, fluentlyforward.com slash ebook. And it was all about breakup stuff. And the first chapter is just like eat well, sleep well, like take care of yourself. Yeah. Like you are like a returning from war or something yeah. because it feels like that for your body. So before we get into um, today's episode, which is going to be breaking down all of these celebrity breakups and relationships and the themes of them and how we can learn from these relationship uh, mishaps that celebrities have gone through, I want us both to share kind of our favorite breakup tip. And it could be anything from like small and fun to like hugely foundational. What's like one tip that you love giving to people? I... I love this one. I think if you are still blaming your ex, vilifying your ex, psychoanalyzing your ex, hoping for your ex to change or to come and give you closure, you are still in a relationship with your ex. You're just in a relationship with someone who's not in a relationship with you. And all of this blaming, all of this focus um, spent on, you know, I'm going to have a revenge body and thirst trap pics so that I evoke jealousy, all of that is not helping you move forward because your focus and energy is invested in them and what they're thinking, what they're not thinking. And that only strengthens your neural pathways that are connected to them. Yes. Oh my, we think so similarly. I remember back when I was blogging, I had a blog post that said, um, forget the title of it, but it was basically saying that calling your ex the devil is just taking away power from you. Cause every time you're like, my ex was a narcissist, sociopathic, worst person ever evil. You're putting him on this like massive pedestal. Sure. It's the pedestal of like the most Satan-y person out there, but you're still giving them so much power rather than saying, ah, oh, he was just a mistake. Like it was what it was. Ah, he's just a guy. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, so that we're just that. we're just putting more um, we're fanning that flame of emotional charge and is the mm -hmm. emotional charge that keeps you hooked on your ex. Mm -hmm. I remember the most healing thing for me after my last breakup was I was talking on the phone maybe like six months after it happened to a friend of my ex because I just like hadn't gotten that closure. I was like still hung up on like why like I just don't know why we broke up. I'm like still thinking about it like. What was the reason? And I remember the friend of my ex was like, Shannon, like, he's just him. Like, he's just like some guy. He just like, you know, like works in finance and like lived in, like, he's just a guy. And for some reason, having their friends say that completely released me because I was like, oh, it is just a guy. Like, I thought he was like the one and my soulmate and my everything and my answer and my solution. And it's like, everybody is just like a person, you know, it's, yeah. it's very freeing. Yeah. My favorite breakup tip, um, this is one in the ebook. Have you ever used chat GPT um, as like advice for people going through a breakup? Mm, not for articles, yes, but not for yeah. advice just yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I will use chat GPT as a free therapist sometimes where I'll write out like a diary entry, like I feel this way, like about this person and like we had this fight and blah, blah, blah. And then I'll take that Word document page and I'll put it into chat GPT with the prompt Hi, ChatGPT, can you summarize this diary entry for me? And the way that, uh, you know, a machine summarizing your thoughts back to you, I remember once I had this fight with a guy and I wrote it all out and then I had ChatGPT summarize it and they were like, oh, the author of this post feels disrespected by this argue, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, I couldn't pinpoint that I felt disrespected, but ChatGPT could. And I feel like using it as a therapist is great because you could use it at 2 a.m. You can use it in, you know, when you're in the bathroom at work, like anytime you need it. So weirdly enough, my advice is like use AI to help you. <laughs> that is so cool because it allows you to zoom out. And because we're so stuck in our assumptions and our cognitive distortions when we're in it, that yeah. having that can help you just have a, a wider perspective. Yeah. And if you talk to your friend or your mom, they're like, oh, well, like we know this about him. So they cater advice. Right. But ChatGPT is like a machine. So it's yeah. not biased. Today's episode of Fluently Forward is brought to you by Bull and Branch. As Amy and I in this episode are talking about breakups and makeups, maybe you've gone through a breakup and you just want to retreat to your bed, or maybe you're meeting someone new and you want to roll around with them in the softest, most luxurious sheets without any toxins or harsh chemicals. And that is where Bull and Branch comes into play. I've been using Bull and Branch sheets for maybe like two, three months now. 
they are a game changer. They are my absolute favorite to sleep on. I have like this soft, neutral palette. And every time I wash them, they truly do get softer and feel better, which I feel like is the opposite of how most bed sheets that I've had before in the past have worked. So if you want to try out Bowl & Branch, their signature hemmed sheets, they're a bestseller for a reason. They're made with the highest quality, 100% organic cotton threads on earth, and they're loved by millions of sleepers. So if you want to sleep better at night with Bowl & Branch sheets, get 15% off of your first order when you use promo code fluently at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code fluently. Exclusions apply. See site for details. All right, well, let's get into some of these celebrity stories and uh, kind of talk about the themes and the drama of each of them. So the first person or relationship, I should say, I want to talk about is Zayn and Gigi Hadid. Um, How familiar are you with this couple? Were you like invested in their relationship when they were together? Uh, I'm not invested in any celebrities' relationships, but I'm very good at psychoanalyzing them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's, that's probably the healthiest place you could be at. Well, basically... Zayn, right, the guy who left One Direction, was dating Gigi Hadid, beautiful supermodel. Um, They were kind of on again, off again, and they ended up having a child together. So when they broke up, a lot of people were really shocked by that. And it turned out that family drama was at the center of this. So when they did break up, they were talking about Yolanda, who was Gigi Hadid's mom. There was a quote, a source, which is typically someone in the family or close to either person, who said, um, Zane and Gigi co-parent. Yolanda is, of course, very protective of Gigi. She wants the best for her daughter and grandchild. And what came out after that quote was a statement of a police report filed against Zane for striking Yolanda Hadid, Gigi's mother. Zane told TMZ that he denied these false allegations that he struck her, but what happened was that he was charged with four counts of harassment for allegedly calling Yolanda a fucking Dutch slut, ordering her to stay away from my fucking daughter, and then also mentioning the fucking sperm that came out of his fucking cock. Um... And allegedly, he grabbed Yolanda, shoved her into a dresser, causing her mental anguish and physical pain. And then, allegedly, Zayn screamed at Gigi Hadid, strap on some fucking balls and defend your partner against your fucking mother in my house. Sorry to my parents for all the F-bombs, but I am just reading quotes here. And then, allegedly, he got into a fight with one of their security guards um, and ended up leaving. So obviously, the two broke up after this. And it just seemed like there was a lot of divisiveness in the relationship between Gigi, her mother, and Zane. So my question to you is what happens in a relationship when you just can't stand somebody's family member or maybe your partner can't stand your mother? How do you navigate something like that? Well, first, we don't do what he did. <laughs> yeah, you don't call someone a Dutch slut. <laughs> um, so I think when we when we dial it back and, and kind of take this as an example, and what can we do? I think there's some things to understand. There is something called emotional incest. Um, mm. And it, it's nothing sexual, but this happens when a parent, um, it could be mother or father or caregiver, enmeshes their child meaning this child maybe they're uh, you know very young or you know before they've even hit their teens and the child uses them as either a therapist as um almost like a partner to confide in as a best friend and so that child doesn't get to just be a kid they have this responsibility um to play this role for that parent and this causes a lot of um challenges when this child grows up so they tend to be more avoidantly attached when they're older Mm. so this happens and i think that if you are in a relationship with someone who has been enmeshed by their parent this can make it really hard for your partner to kind of break that bond and that glue that seems to constantly be around. Um, I don't think that this is an excuse, but I shed this light so that maybe you could have a little bit more compassion to understand the history behind why sometimes people cling to their parent like that. Um, The second part is I believe that there's this thing called thirds. And when you are in a relationship and you want to have a healthy partnership, it's you and your partner as that's the primary priority relationship Mm -hmm. and everything else 
like a mother-in-law, a father-in-law, an ex, uh, a business partner, that's a third. And it is up to you to make sure that you have strong boundaries with this third. So it's not interfering the connection and stability between you and your partner. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that emotional incest, which I feel so like dirty saying that, but that's absolutely the case with Yolanda Hadid. Like she is so enmeshed into Gigi and Bella's, maybe Anwar, but I don't know, their life where, you know, their work, their love, everything that they do. Also, I feel like when you're a celebrity or influencer, the boundaries of work and life are blurred. Everything is, you know, you are your job, basically. What are some examples of emotional incest because I feel like there's a lot of people out there who are really close with a parent right I'm thinking like Rory and Lorelai Gilmore like is that emotional incest if you're each other's best friend or does it get to a point where like the mom is trauma dumping on her daughter so then that makes it like where's kind of that fine line when you are a child your parent is not supposed to be your best friend this is completely unhealthy mm. When you're an adult, sure, you can be friends. But when you are a minor, your child is your child. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, emotionally dumping or talking, like, you know, talking gossip and vilifying the father to to your, your child or the mother to your child, um, treating them like a therapist, confiding details that a child shouldn't know. All of this, these are examples of emotional incest, as well as living vicariously through your child. That's a yes. big one. You hear of that all the time. Like the mom wanted to be a gymnast, but she couldn't. So now the daughter's going to be like the best at gymnastics ever. It's like so freaky the way that that happens. Yeah. Or or maybe, you know, the mother and it could be father too. But I'll, in this case, I'll say the mother. Say the mother like she spent her whole life raising the children. Maybe she didn't create a job or a career. And so her sense of identity is her children. And so she gets really controlling, she meddles um, because their livelihood and their validation and their success is your own. And there mm. isn't, there's this very unhealthy line that keeps getting blurred. Um, and that's also emotional incest. Yeah. What would you say about like, this is so niche, but like, I feel like people on TikTok talk about this where you have like a boy mom and sometimes you'll be dating a guy and they're really close to their mother and their mother's really close to them. And you'll be like, does the mom like want to fuck their son? Like people will talk about this on Twitter where I feel like, especially with boy moms, they're very protective. Like no one's good enough for my son. Like all of this stuff. Is that emotional incest or is that just like typical mothers being protective over their sons? I think that it really depends, right? There's definitely, yes, like a parent who doesn't think someone's good enough and maybe for valid reasons. And then there's the extreme where they might not even be conscious of the fact that they are jealous of someone else taking that prime spot now. And mm. it is um, you as that mother who is like, my everything is the son. And now here's a woman that's going to come along and I'm going to be knocked off of my number one spot. Hell no, I am going to do whatever I can to sabotage or interfere or make sure that even if they get married or they're in a relationship, I'm still number one and I will do whatever it takes. I will use guilt. I will like, mm -hmm. like, I will like have helplessness so that I can make sure my child puts me as number one priority. Dude, the guilt and the helplessness, like I've seen that so many times when so many people use it as like weapons. What's what's the right way to go about that? Is it just like you and your partner focus on each other and you wait for them to set the boundaries with the mother? Or is there something psychologically where you're supposed to be super nice to the mom or actually pretty distant? Is there like a roadmap for how to deal with this? So if you are finding it's your partner that has this, you know, enmeshing mother and mm -hmm. this third that's interfering in your relationship, it's the very first thing is having this conversation. It might be a series of conversations with your partner to really like look at what are the priorities of this relationship and to make sure that you guys are both aligned. And yeah. it, it may help to have a third party, like a therapist to help you in case your partner gets defensive because they're protective of your mother. Uh, and it might be hard for you to come across in a way that doesn't make them defensive, but you have to get that conversation going and then for, for them to see like, oh, no, this relationship is the most important important and priority. And now I need to shift the dynamic. Um, 
And then it's your partner's responsibility to set those boundaries. It is not yours. You're not mm -hmm. supposed to be the one having that awkward conversation with your mother-in-law. This is yeah. your partner's responsibility. Preach, preach. There's that subreddit. I think it's called like just no mother-in-law or something like that. And it used to always come up and I would just read the most insane stories. Like there are some, there's emotional incest going on a lot more than we would think it is out there. Yeah. Now, the next couple, weirdly enough, that we're going to talk about is Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. And we talk about them a lot here on Fluently Forward. And oddly enough, I consider them a relationship, you know, both like business and romantic. So a lot of people wondered, what was the true nature of the relationship between Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell? To me, it reads as very toxic and codependent. So basically, in the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, a lot of evidence came out, um, including photos of her giving him basically like a foot job on a private plane or vacationing at the Queen's log cabin somewhere in England. And basically, all of these photos came out saying that they weren't just working together or colleagues. These two were definitely dating. And a lot of different people, including... Um, Epstein's private pilots throughout the 1990s and 2000s basically said that they were in a personal relationship, they struck them as couple-ish, but they never really held hands or kissed. So a lot of different people paint this picture of Jeffrey Epstein as this, they say handsome, but I mean, to me, it's up for debate. Anyway, this handsome, billionaire, wealthy, awkward, socially nerdy type of guy who ended up finding Ghislaine Maxwell. And Ghislaine Maxwell had this powerful tycoon of a um, father who ended up being allegedly murdered. And when he died, she kind of gravitated toward Jeffrey Epstein as this father figure. And she had the British wit and charisma and social climbing grace to bring Jeffrey Epstein through these upper echelons of people. And Jeffrey Epstein had the vast amounts of allegedly blackmail money. So then that way she felt like there was this older man in her life who could provide her with a sense of stability and she would just be kind of charming and help him out. So a lot of people have made comments here. Um, I saw them at a very grand party once, and she might as well have been leading him around on a leash. He was horribly shy and awkward. She sold her soul to Jeffrey, and she's too smart to claim that she was hoodwinked. She knew what she was doing. She looked up to Jeffrey like he was Zeus. She worshipped him. She clearly knew how perverted she, he was, but it didn't stop her from becoming his accomplice. I never got the feeling that he was in love with her, but they gave off the aura of being a couple. But it was Ghislaine worshipping Jeffrey and making sure that he was the center of attention in a room. So a lot of people said that allegedly she was in love with him. He didn't return the feelings. She wanted Jeffrey to marry uh, her. He was never going to do that. And weirdly enough, in reading about their relationship, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the comic book Joker and Harley Quinn, where you have this like blatantly evil man and then his female sidekick who's like in love with him, but equally as evil as him. And my question for you is, how do you treat a breakup in a situation like this where it is not amicable, it's not one instance of cheating, but rather it's like three years of being toxically codependent and doing everything and tying your entire identity to someone? How do you deal when you break up from a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, it seems like taking this very crazy case and like if we were to apply it to our lives there is definitely a case of trauma traumatic bonding in what mm. has happened right and this refers to the emotional attachment between uh an abuser and abused person um and there's a cycle of violence whether that's physical or emotional or mental violence and abuse and what happens is like because we can look and be like oh my gosh how crazy right how crazy that she stayed in it or we could look at even a couple where the woman's abused and like, oh my God, you could have left so many times. We tried to help you, but we don't mm -hmm. understand what happens on a psychological level is like, there's um, this, this cycle of abuse where like there is the treating of, of being bad or, or uh, withdrawing or ignoring. And then what happens, there's a honeymoon period afterwards where mm -hmm. they come back and they're sweet and they apologize and they make promises and you dip from the lowest of the lows to the highest of highs and that happens over and over again and this can create a very addictive cycle so you know this is like this intermittent reinforcement you don't know when the rewards are going to come when they're sporadic 
this can cause us to feel addicted. It's just like the gambler at a slot machine. And this mm. happens when we are in these toxic relationships, when love or attention is doled out sporadically. Um, so, you know, how do we, how do we get out of this? Uh, it's many, many different steps. Like one is you definitely need, um, a support team of people that you can trust who can help pull you out of that black hole because it is very easy to get back in because of the cycle. Um, and this is going to be from your therapist to friends or family. I'd say you want to get that support group to probably even set up before you even do the breakup. I, I have people come to breakup boot camp and they know they're going to do the breakup one another time. And they're like, I'm mm. setting all of this up now so that when I leave, this is the final straw and I have enough momentum because that's a hard part. You don't have enough momentum to get out of it. And then you slide back in. Yeah. And what you said is so true too. I feel like there's, unless you've been in a toxic or codependent or abusive relationship, like you really just don't understand it until you've been in it. And there's so many people that, right. They're like, just leave. Like, how hard is it? You know, it's just a person just like, don't text him back the way that I don't know if it's chemicals or like you said, addiction, but the way that you will keep going back to someone and make all of these mistakes, it's really staggering. Isn't there some quote too about like it takes seven different attempts before you actually leave an abusive relationship? So yeah, there, that, there was a study on um, women who were abused and they had to leave seven, diff seven different times before they were able to finally break free from the relationship. And you're right, there actually are chemicals um, stress and, and trauma when you're in this kind of toxic dynamic, it activates the body's fight, flight, freeze response. And over time, uh, this chronic activation can lead to an overload of stress hormones like cortisol. Uh, it, it can impair your, your brain and your body to make clear decisions. So, mm. you know, also when you have that coming back together, the, the promises, apologies, the gifts, that honeymoon calm after a cycle of the hard stuff, the body releases oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone. This strengthens that feeling of attachment, even in these really hard, toxic situations. People who do this, people who are the toxic or abusive ones in relationships, right? They're the ones who are withholding and then coming back with presents. Do they know that they're doing this? Like, do they do it on purpose or do they think that I don't know, like they're just going about life in a normal way, but really what they're doing is actually heinous. I've always been so curious about that. I think it depends. I would say like the majority of people who are ghosting or pulling away, they're not, you know, in this dark room strategically planning to do this, yeah. right? They are reacting from a place of woundedness, typically how they reacted when they were a child. And people mm. who ghost or withdraw, that is a, a freeze reaction. It's a disassociation. And so in their head, they might be like, you know what? I just don't want to, I don't want to make them feel worse by having this conversation. They will rationalize. We typically as human beings think we are good people. Uh, even mm -hmm. if we're doing bad things. And we will find mm -hmm. ways to rationalize what we are doing for the greater good of something. Um, and, yeah. you know, in the extreme cases of someone who actually has narcissist personality disorder or your actual psychopath, this is very different. There is no remorse. There is no guilt. Um, but I think in general, generally speaking, um, we think we're doing okay. I know that my self-admitted toxic trait is that like if I'm dating someone and they say something that maybe like hurts my feelings or maybe I find myself getting like low-key jealous or wondering about something instead of just talking about it right then and there and I feel like a lot of other women do this too I will just kind of like keep it to myself and get a little bit moody or silent because in my head I'm like well I can only bring it up like I don't want to sound crazy for voicing you know how I feel right now so instead I'm going to wait and try to find the right words to understand how I feel but it takes me about 20 minutes to understand how I feel so instead I'm a moody little silent treatment bitch for 20 minutes because I'm trying not to sound crazy is that a form of, you know, withdrawing or shutting down? How do you like move away from something like that? 
that's actually a form of processing and it is healthy. So I think (laughs) what you could add to that though, is let the person know saying I'm feeling flooded right now and I need to process. And 20 minutes Mm. is a short period of time. People typically need longer. Um, Mm. So you just let them know like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, go for a walk. I need a couple hours to process this, but let them know, Hey, you know, at, at 8 PM or over dinner, let's come back to this. Um, And because you're in an activated state, your amygdala, the part of your brain that processes fear and threat detection is on high alert and your prefrontal cortex, a part of your brain that's responsible for being logical, making strategic choices, that's like dims. So Mm. you cannot have a, you know, a healthy conversation when you're in that wounded activated state. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. I thought that it was me being like literally so toxic. I just like when in doubt, I just like go silent and like very obviously moody. But I feel like, right, if you paraphrase it with like, I just need 20 minutes to figure out how I feel, that's a little bit better. Yeah. Today's episode of Fluently Forward is brought to you by Chime. As summer is winding down and we're heading into fall, you might be looking for a better way to build credit, and you can do so with the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. This is a way that you can build your credit score safely with everyday purchases and on-time payments. Plus, there's no annual fee, interest, or credit check to get started. Other things that the Chime's checking account will offer for you is that you can get paid up to two days earlier. So with a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. You can also ditch the monthly fees. There's no monthly minimum balance or overdraft fees. And you can also send and receive money. So you can pay your friends through Chime no matter what bank account they use and cash out your money fee free. So start building your credit up. Open up a Chime checking account with at least a $200 qualifying direct deposit to get started. So go get started at Chime.com fluently. That's Chime.com fluently. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Stride Bank, member FDIC. Chime checking account and $200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. On-time payment history may have a positive impact on your credit score. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary. Okay, the next couple I want to cover, they're very controversial, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. What did you think about them? Because I have to admit, there was a part of me at the beginning where I was like, they're both fame monsters. Maybe they're perfect for each other. Did you like them as a couple or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I thought that they were well suited because Mm -hmm. they have a lot of similarities. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I I don't know if they're positive traits or negative traits, but they have a lot of the same traits, basically. So they started dating in 2000 and, um, well, actually, sorry, not when they started dating. Their trouble in their relationship started in 2016. This is when we first started to get rumors that there was friction in the marriage. One of the reasons was Kanye's compulsive tweeting. Uh, a source said that Kim can't stand it. She's all for self-promotion, but she doesn't approve of Twitter drama. He was later diagnosed with bipolar in 2016. There was a moment where he was receiving outpatient care someone, or sorry, outpatient care somewhere else with a medical team, so he wasn't staying with Kim for a bit. Then in 2020, um, we had more drama on Twitter. This is when Kanye West claimed that Kris Jenner had tried to lock him up and that he was considering divorcing his wife. This was also the year that Kim Kardashian spoke publicly about his bipolar diagnosis. Um, saying that she's never spoken publicly about how this affected us at home because she's very protective of her children and Kanye's right to privacy, but she wants to comment on it because of the stigma and misconceptions about mental health. She said that Kanye West is a brilliant and complicated person and that his words sometimes do not align with his intentions. So the couple kind of continued to go downhill for a year. Then in January 2021, Different sources said that Kim was going to file for divorce for Kanye West. Um, A source said, he knows that it's done. She has had enough. And she told him that she wants some space to figure out her future. He's okay. He's sad, but okay. He knows that the inevitable will happen and that it's coming soon. So then she ended up speaking out about this a little bit in 2022, saying, for so long, I did what made other people happy. And I think in the last two years, I decided I'm going to make myself happy. And that feels really good. And even if that created changes and caused my divorce, I think it's important to be honest with yourself about what really makes you happy. And then she also spoke a little bit too about how it was really hard for her because Kanye would want to move to a different state every year and he wanted to, you know, run for president. Then he's in Wyoming. Then he wants to start his own like church school situation. And she was saying that he deserves someone who will support his every move and follow him all over the place. But she can't do that. And she feels like a failure because it's her third marriage. So she feels like a loser. 
I think that there were a lot of obstacles in this relationship between the both of them. I also think his bipolar diagnosis is interesting because I know a lot of couples, you know, myself included, have had relationships where mental health was kind of like this third person in the relationship. So my question for you is, how do you deal with mental health in a relationship in terms of knowing if it's something that you can support and get through together or if it's something where you kind of have to cut your ship from someone else's and leave so they don't take you down with them? Yeah, I mean, it's so complicated and I feel like mental health challenges are on the rise and they are, right? Anxiety's on the rise, depression's on the rise. Um, so I think this is a thing that is very common and there isn't one answer or one time frame. You have to really be able to check in with yourself and see like, what is your capacity? And if you are being impacted and you can't get back to an equilibrium because you can go through stressful situations, whether that's with a partner or with a family member and find those ways to self-soothe and kind of get back to center, draw a boundary when you need to, and then you're okay. And you can actually even grow from that. Um, but if you're finding that there's no way you can get back to equilibrium and then it starts impacting your mental health and um, then you aren't able to be the parent you want to be to your children or the friend or, you know, um, then you have to really take a hard look and see what, what is an alternative solution. And that mm. doesn't necessarily mean like, oh my God, it's a divorce or it's a breakup. It could look many different ways. And, um, you know, that could be space. That could be really strong boundaries that if they are on a drinking binge or something like that, you are not going to pick up the phone call. You're not going to open the door, um, but it is going to have to, that strategy is going to have to be very unique to you. Mm. Is this something that you see, something that I've heard a lot from my girlfriends and obviously coming at this from my lens would be different than anyone else's, but I have known myself and a lot of other girlfriends to be dating men who end up falling into a depression, but I feel like men can't really admit in today's day and age that they're depressed as easily as women typically do. So instead of saying, I'm going through mental health trouble, I feel depressed, they'll just start to get like short and snippy and maybe bitchy at you and start like criticizing you about certain things. Is there a way that you've found over time is helpful to try and like lead men towards therapy or addressing their mental health? Or do you think that's something that each individual has to do on their own? Well, I, I think there's different there's different strategies. So I think in the beginning, that strategy is encouragement. And mm. um, if they are open to even like listening to a podcast first, or reading a book together and having a conversation about it, like you, you can just kind of gently guide them. I don't believe you go from zero to 100. So if someone's very like, I've never done therapy before, I don't believe in it. And then you're like, well, you should really go do this. Um, yeah. so people do not respond well to demands. They will mm -hmm. either, they they feel like they're kind of backed in the corner. They will either rebel against you or they will comply and resent you for it. So they mm -hmm. need to come up with the, like, the decision on their own. And all you can do is ask questions and hope that in conversation, they will be like, you know what, it, it's it's something worth trying. And I think it's important to understand that this doesn't happen in one conversation. Um, they're seeds, you plant little seeds, and you see what grows, and you continue to nurture them. And then you might get to a point when the seeds aren't growing, and it's really mm -hmm. impacting you and the relationship. And you have to have a serious conversation of like, what is the strategy? And what are the solutions we're going to try together? And the ones you're mm -hmm. going to do on your own? Um, and you know, if, if not, like, we're going to have to really revisit if this relationship is working. Yes. I so resonate with that. Cause I feel like in every relationship I've been in, I almost like when there's a problem, like not a big one, but I am such like a solution brainstorm girl where if there's a problem, like we could try this, we could try that. Like, here's this idea that like, I heard about this, you know, method, we could try this, try that. And for me, it's always a sign that a relationship is kind of dead in the water when the other partner doesn't want to brainstorm with you or come up with solutions or ideas of how to move forward. And I feel like that's a clear sign that, I don't know what you would call it, but just that like there's nothing like kicking on that side to try and 
keep this thing alive. Yeah, and I think it's mutual investment. And look, I don't I think some people even if they want to and they have the intention, they just don't have the capacity. And mm. it's not a personal thing because I think sometimes we can take it personally. Well, if you loved me enough, you would go to yeah. AA. And like it's I, I my father is an is a gambling addict. I so I know very closely what addiction does. Um, and I did say the that story of like, well, if he loved us, he would. And I've realized, at least with the case with, you know, my dad, it's not about his love or not love for us. It's that the addiction takes a hold and has more power over his relationships. And so I don't take it personal. I have to remind myself that. And I think that um, we have to do that because otherwise we think, you know, it's if we try harder then and if, you know, we're prettier or we're yeah. this more, then then yes. the love will be there and then they will kick the addiction. Well, it doesn't happen that way. Yes. God, that's yeah, that that resonates right there. Well, another couple I want to talk about, and this is going to lead me into one of my favorite things that you talk about, which is, um, what do you call it? The shit bucket, I <laughs> yeah. think. Um, so I want to talk about the Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston, Angelina Jolie love triangle, which obviously, you know, everyone in pop culture is talking about this. So um, Brad Pitt, he's married to Jennifer Aniston. They're the golden couple in Hollywood. They even start to look alike. They're tan. They have the highlighted hair, and they're just so cool in California. Um, they announced their split in January 2005 in a joint statement saying that, you know, we want to announce that after seven years together, we've decided to formally separate. Now, at the same time that this is happening, Brad Pitt has been filming Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Angelina Jolie. And a lot of people are thinking about what's going on there. Basically, the legend goes that Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston were together. Jennifer Aniston is notoriously in the blind items and in the gossip world, just kind of this chill California girl who likes to do yoga by the beach and smoke weed and just chill out. And Angelina Jolie likes to travel and do things that are exotic and scandalous, and she's out there. And we have a quote from Brad Pitt talking about where he was mentally in his marriage to Jennifer Aniston. He says, I spent the 90s trying to hide out, trying to duck the full celebrity cacophony. I started to get sick of myself sitting on a couch, holding a joint, hiding out. It started feeling pathetic. It became very clear to me that I was intent on trying to find a movie about an interesting life, but I wasn't living an interesting life myself. I think that my marriage had something to do with it, trying to pretend that the marriage is something that it wasn't. Now, a lot of people also said, too, at this point, Jennifer Aniston wasn't interested in having kids, but Angelina Jolie was interested in having kids. There's even a rumor out there that allegedly she wanted to have as many kids in the world um, that matched the number of abortions that she had had. So that's why she wanted to have, you know, such a wide variety of kids out there. Now, that's just a legend. I don't know if that's true or not, but rumor goes that it's this 80-20% rule where Brad Pitt was 80% happy with Jennifer Aniston, but the 20% that was missing was that exotic lifestyle, that traveling, that something new, the wanting to have children and a family. And then he meets Angelina Jolie on the set. They have this undeniable chemistry, and she has this 20% of wanting to have kids and do something new and different um, and wild. So he ends up leaving Jennifer Aniston for Angelina Jolie. Now, of course, you know, there's pivots and caveats in this. They ended up being married. They were together for a long time. Now they are divorced. But it is, to me, an example of this kind of 20% versus 80% that I hear a lot of people talk about in relationships. And I'm curious what you think of that rule and if you see that happening. Yeah. And before I go into the what I, the shit bucket theory, mm -hmm. um, you know, a commentary on Brad Pitt and how he's just chilling out and hiding out and, and smoking weed. It shows like he was in a place where he had numbed out. So, mm. and, and basically when you are numb, you then can look towards something else, an external stimulus to make you feel alive. And in this case, when do you uh, numb out too? Is that like when you've been at the same job for five years or is that like a certain time period in your life? I don't think it's about your job. I think it is a way of inter like how you internally deal with emotions. So mm. like, I'm just going to not deal. Right. Cause for him, he's like, I'm going to hide out. I'm going to smoke weed. I'm going to like, just kind of stay undercover. And there's this kind of like numbing of like, I don't want to feel the things. I don't want to be out there. And so 
if you are coming from a place of numbness, then this bright, shiny object that's like excitement and fire and maybe chaotic, but oh my God, how stimulating and novelty. Well, that's going to be very, very enticing. But if you are in a place where you're not numb and like mm -hmm. you have your hobbies and you're dancing and you're alive, that bright, shiny, fiery thing isn't going to be as appetizing because you're not using that to fulfill a hole that you don't have. Mm. yeah so, so that's one part the second part is my totally non-scientific shit bucket theory but will probably change your life and that is like <laughs> in every relationship there will be 20 percent, which is shit these are the things that are annoying it's the fact that you're extroverted and they're introverted and you like skiing and they like chess and these are things that you're going to continually probably get annoyed at and and fight about but the temptation is, you know what, the grass is greener over there, because that person has those things. And then mm -hmm. you jump ship and you go to the other person. And then there's a whole other 20% bucket of shit. So maybe they like skiing just like you do. And they like are extroverted like you are, but then they party all the time and mm -hmm. they never want to come home and they like drink till five in the morning. So you have to now deal with another bucket of shit. And then you're like, well, the next one. So we can get into this cycle of constantly thinking, okay, I got to upgrade. I got to find, you know, something better to replace this, but it's just a different bucket of shit. It's a different flavor of it that you're going to have to deal with. <laughs> Yeah, it's caca flavor instead of doo-doo, you know, but it still tastes like shit. <laughs> what What is like an example? I know you're talking about like, you know, skiing and extroversion. What is the difference between like, oh, that's just a shit bucket thing versus like this is a something that's going to be a deal breaker, a real problem for us? How do you kind of decipher between like the importance of those I think values is a big one. So if you are fundamentally not aligned in values, that is going to be the root of many issues. Many behavioral issues will come from that. Uh, I and what, think what's like an example, like values are like, I'm close to my family or like, what, what are some examples? So if you, you value that? honesty, uh, and not mm -hmm. everyone does, right? Because they can say they want honesty in another person. And then they're like, well, I'm honest to this person, but like definitely not to my mom, right? Like, yeah. so if you if you have like your top value is honesty and the other person really doesn't, that's going to be an issue because that person's probably going to withhold information and think it's totally okay. Um, mm -hmm. If you're very generous uh, and then you're with someone who is really in scarcity mindset and calculates everything and is like, what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, that's going to create problems. Um, mm. So I, I think like, you know, for a partnership to have a chance at being healthy and, you know, ongoing, there needs to be four main pillars, which is there's got to be some sort of connection and chemistry. There has to be compatibility. And I mean, values, not you like the same hobbies. Research shows that enjoying the same hobbies does not actually matter. Mm -hmm. um, the third is timing. The perfect person at the wrong time is the wrong person. And the fourth is mutuality. You have two people who are both invested in building. And that mm -hmm. means you're committed to moving through the challenges versus just being like, ah, forget it. I'll just find something else. So yes. those are the things that are, you know, are going to be really crucial. But there are studies that show like the shiny qualities, height, race, religion, occupation, physical attractiveness, money, all those things actually do not predict uh, marital happiness or satisfaction in the long term. Mm. And it's so interesting because so many people end up finding each other through dating apps, right? Where you list out all of your qualities. And then I feel like at least most guys on dating apps are like, I want someone who likes the Arctic monkeys and someone who's going to go snowboarding with me. And it's like, these are all things that don't matter. Everybody's talking about hobbies and likes and interests, which is fine, you know, for a first date. But um yeah, I mean, then I guess you could argue you really only need the first date to then try to find out if you have the same values. But it's funny that people online don't really lead with, I don't know, like, I like honesty and like a family connection and community is important to me. Instead, we're talking about like our favorite color and if we like the ocean or the lake. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of us fall into what's called present bias, which is we place a very high value on things that will matter and make us feel excited or stimulated in the short term, but mm. actually don't impact the long term. And mm -hmm. physical attractiveness, height is one of those things. Um, 
because human beings adapt. So that person that you think is 10 out of 10 hot, and that's why you're like so drawn to that person, uh, in around two years, the chemicals of, of these love drugs last between uh, 12 months to two years. Uh, it starts to change uh, and it all ends up in the same place. So you adapt to that hotness and mm. it doesn't give you that rise anymore. So what do you got what, left? Uh, like scientifically, psychologically, what do you suggest as like the time frame for getting engaged or married, right? Because if you, if all of that stuff wears off after two years, would you say it's dangerous to get engaged after just like a few months? Um, yeah, I do. Like, look, there are definitely cases where, oh, well, I'm married after three months and we're like, great. Okay. Like yeah. those are anomalies, but I think yeah. generally speaking, you do not know someone in eight months. You do not. You do not have enough time and experience to see how are they when they're triggered? How are they when they go through a crisis? How are they on a vacation where they missed three flights? Um, all of these things you only know about someone through time. And the the chemicals of, um, you know, this increase of dopamine, this, uh, your amygdala starts to decrease, like your use, your threat processing is de decreased. So you have rose colored tinted glasses in the very beginning. Um, mm. These are all things, mother nature's way of creating enough momentum for two people to get together so they can eventually procreate. That's mother yeah. nature. That's all they it cares about. It does not care <laughs> if this person's good for you. And so after that, right, like you move from the passionate stage of love to the companionate stage of love. And that's different chemicals. It's, uh, oxytocin serotonin these chemicals suppress dopamine and uh you know if you don't know that there's this switch this evolution you might think at that point like oh i don't feel butterflies anymore this person's not for me no the relationship yeah. is evolving yeah dude, okay first of all mother nature is horned up because you're right they're just like trying to get us to like you know, have sex with each other. They don't really care about like settling down in front of a fireplace. So would you say two years is around the point or is it one year? Like when do you move from the butterflies to like the, oh, we're companions now? I think two years is a reasonable period of time. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Good to know. Yeah. I'm like thinking of certain relationships I've had where like, yeah, after the year or like a year and a half, the guy will be like, oh, I just like don't know if I'd like I'm in love anymore. And I'm always like, that's crazy. Cause like a couple months ago, like you were and like nothing has changed. So maybe that's it. Right. It's the companion stage. Yeah. And I think people need like, there's a maturity of understanding what partnerships are. And mm. like in your twenties, like, yeah, it's all about excitement and novelty and all this stuff. And I think when you are in a different stage of life and you want different things, you don't put so much of a priority on that crazy excitement. Like you get tired, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Your joints hurt, different priorities. Yeah, your neck is sore, you know, <laughs> you want someone to split the mortgage with. Today's episode of Fluently Forward is brought to you by Next Evo Naturals. You've heard me talk about them again and again because I love them. I'm a fiend for the CBD, okay? Uh, as Amy and I are talking in this episode about relationships and celebrity makeups and breakups, there might be a time when you're in a relationship and you've got some stress or you're feeling a little anxious. For me, this is when I see a photo of the last person that my current partner dated and I immediately get anxious and I think that they're in love. Or if I'm about to meet their friends or family, pop a couple CBD gummies, okay? Because that's a moment where you're going to be stressed in a relationship. Now, CBD is uh, fantastic for any time that you're feeling anxious, if you've got trouble sleeping, if you're looking to kind of de-stress. And what makes Next Evo Naturals the best CBD gummies is because they absorb better. They've got 100% of the CBD listed on the label and they are clinically tested. So if you want to upgrade to better natural solutions from Next Evo Naturals, go to nextevo.com and use the promo code FLUENTLY to get 20 25% off. That is 25% off at nextevo.com with the promo code fluently. Okay, the next couple here I want to talk about is when Demi Lovato and Max Eric, I believe it's pronounced, um, this was really a flash in the pan. This was a 2020 relationship, which we all had these. We were all here. But basically, they quarantined together and they got engaged after just four months of dating. So they were eons away from the companionship stage. Um, they ended up obviously <laughs> breaking up. Um, it also came out that he was a little bit of like a fanboy before they met. So old tweets of his came to surface where 
he was tweeting that he had crushes on Selena Gomez and Demi Lovato. Um, a past tweet of his said, all I wanted for Christmas was Demi Lovato. Hashtag can always, can't always get what you want. And at the time, she like found these old tweets and she would post them on Instagram and be like, oh my God, like I love it. Like we love a little manifestation. Well, he did turn out to be crazy because they ended up breaking up. Um, it was a little bit of a funny breakup at one point. An Instagram account asked Demi Lovato to describe her last relationship in three words, and she wrote, my vibrators better. And then several days later, Max posted a shirtless photo on social media, captioning it, I never have complaints. And then um, he proposed to her on a beach, you know, back when they were engaged. And when they broke up, he went to the same beach in Malibu to cry alone by himself. And he called TMZ to take pictures of him crying on the beach with his head in his hands. It was honestly, looking back on it, very camp. He also had a little bit of a freakish crush on her friend, Selena Gomez, um, and after the breakup, he followed her on Instagram and played her song Ice Cream on an Instagram Live and just all of this very, very messy stuff. So my question to you is, if anyone listening has gone through a breakup and their ex is publicly acting out, how do you best respond to that? What's the best course of action to do there? First is avoid retaliation. It's tempting to react in a way of like wearing a t-shirt that says something shitty about them <laughs> but it's yeah, important, my vibrator like, you yeah. know like remain to to remain calm and not retaliate and not to add more fuel to the drama fire um mm. because they they want a reaction and yes. if that reaction that they want is like you to love them or miss them and they're not getting that then the next best thing is to get a negative reaction from you any rise will do so um, you will probably make things worse. Um, document everything and mm. um, set boundaries. Let your ex know either directly or through a mediator um, that their behavior isn't acceptable and you expect them to stop um, and outline the consequences if their behavior continues, such as legal action. And are there any signs like in the beginning, like, you know, I know everybody says, oh, if you're dating a guy and oh my God, oh, he says all of my exes were so crazy. That's kind of a red flag that he might be crazy. Is there anything you can look for at the beginning that might tell you, ooh, this person is not going to be fun to go through a breakup with? Yeah, I think the the vilifying and labeling exes as uh, with like mental disorders is one mm. thing. And mm -hmm. um, I think a second thing is, you know, in, even in this situation, like this pedestaling of someone where it seems like he projected a fantasy of this person that she was. And yes. when someone pedestals you or they project this idea of you, they don't see you as a human being. They're objectifying you. So they're not mm -hmm. engaging in a healthy relational way. And objects, if it has a crack, if it's not perfected, um, and humans, we have lots of cracks. They eventually will be like, oh my God, I don't, this is not perfect. This is not, it's bursting my fantasy bubble. I don't want you. Um, mm -hmm. Or I want something else. I want something better. What's what's better than this? So yeah, that's give a, me my shit bucket. <laughs> yeah, like that's a major problem when someone objectifies you. And as much as she thinks those tweets were cute, they're not. Yes, I know. It's such a thin line to walk because you want someone to think the world of you, but you don't want them to think that you're literally the world. You know, but like, it's not earned. Someone thinking yeah. the world of you because you're really great on at branding yourself on social media or you're successful yes. or you're, you know, take great filtered photos. Like that isn't you. A hundred percent. I remember I had this first date with a guy who ended up being really bizarre. Um, but I remember on the date, he was like, oh my God, like you're just so blah, blah, blah. Like all of these flattering compliments. And they feel really freaky on a first date where I was like, we've been talking for like 45 minutes. You know what I mean? It's just like bizarre when somebody does that. But there's a lot of people out there, which, you know what, I'm going to skip ahead because um, this has reminded me of another very interesting relationship, and that is Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande, and they also moved incredibly fast. They were engaged for um, four months before they split, but how long did it take for them to get engaged? Just a few weeks, which is insane. After a few weeks of dating, Pete Davidson popped the question to Ariana Grande with a $93,000 pear-shaped engagement ring. And then obviously a few months later, um, 
they ended up breaking up. Uh, she said that the breakup was nobody's business, and um, she ended up referring to him later as an amazing distraction, as frivolous, fun, and insane, and highly unrealistic, but I loved him, and I didn't know him. They also like moved in together incredibly fast, which was technically after their engagement, but their engagement was after a couple weeks of knowing each other. They both got tattoos of each other. What would you say, what is a sign that you're moving too fast in a relationship? And what's the difference between a honeymoon stage and getting love bombed by someone? Yeah, so um, someone who thinks that they know you in such a short period of time, there's something off there. It's just not possible. Mm. Um, And this whole idea of soulmates, I'm sorry to burst your soulmate bubble, everyone, but it's not real. You can create a soulmate partnership by working through it, you know, like working through the ups and downs, even go to to therapy five years in when you don't want to have sex with them. Like that's creating a soulmate. But this idea that you just meet someone and like, oh my gosh, like this is the one. And I think that's what happens in these relationships that move really fast is like this, there's this crazy chemistry and sometimes that could be because there's an unconscious trauma bond or wounding pattern that's very familiar to you Mm -hmm. um so you know how can you tell is it like honeymoon versus um which is healthy versus love bombing um love bombing is when someone comes in really strong with gifts gestures promises of the future and then they pull back so they might then follow that up with a period of silence abuse criticism and then Mm -hmm. once you you're like oh my gosh this sucks and they're you're clamoring and then it's not going anywhere and then you start to pull away they will come back and keep a tether on you and then they will do it again so this Mm -hmm. can keep repeating over and over again uh, which causes that intermittent cycle of abuse like what we talked about with Maxwell. Um, So you want to look out for that. You want to look for consistency. Um, You know, people are communicating to you with their words. That's just one part. And their actions. That's just one part. And their non-actions. The things Mm. that they're not doing is also communicating to you. So you have to like look at all these data points through a period of time Instead of doing what a lot of us do is we have confirmation bias. We maybe wanted someone who had this jawline or this job, or we are on some timeline or ticking clock. And this person comes along, you're like, oh my gosh, this is it. You plug them into your plan and your timeline. And then you overlook all of the other things, the red flags, anything, because you're like, no, this is it. So, Mm. um, you know, that's what causes us to get into these relationships. And then we're like, oh my God, like, how did I get here? Yes. God, that rings so true. Like when you start doodling like their last name with yours, it's like, you're so far gone. Like, come on, like you barely even know this person, but you're slotting them into this idea of a future. Yeah. Now, the very last couple that I just want to touch on here is um, the relationship between Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield. They dated for four years. This was another, you know, Spider-Man falling in love with his MJ, um, which, you know, oddly enough happens for every Spider-Man movie. But they dated for four years. They were very private. They still refer to each other as someone that they love very much. It was very amicable. There's still so much love between them. They're each other's biggest fans. They still cheer for each other at award shows. My question for you is I feel like sometimes the amical breakup is actually the hardest because you can't really blame someone for cheating or pinpoint a reason for it. It's just that it couldn't work or it didn't get there, but we still care so much about each other. Is there a certain way you're supposed to heal from that type of breakup where there's no like hate or animosity? Does it make it even harder? Yeah, it's a different type of hard because when there is like this this finality because there's been betrayal or someone did something bad then you're like oh like it's gone so bad that I have to end it it's very obvious but but there's this there's actually this thing called the region beta paradox it's this kind of area where things are not great they're also not bad enough so you kind of just stay in mediocrity purgatory I feel like so many people do that with their nine to five jobs you know you're like it's not horrible enough to leave but I don't love it you know yeah and so they keep staying and staying Mm -hmm. and then because of sunk cost you're like oh well I already invested five years in it I might as well keep staying and you know there's probably nothing even better out there so you rationalize away and then 10 years goes by and you're like man like I haven't been satisfied or happy for a really long time 
Um, and so I think for a friendship breakup, there needs to be a period of time where that ending, um, there can be a transition from this like romantic type of relationship to something else because I think it's very tempting if you guys got along to just stay friends and be yeah. each other's emotional support and cheerleader um, but you're just continuing to strengthen those old neural pathways that are connected to your ex so um, you know I'm friends with some of my exes not all of them have deserved a place in my future but some of them like it's still love. It's just a different type of love, but it required a lot of space and time for those feelings to become neutral. And mm. um, one way to tell is if they are with someone else, you don't feel anything and you can actually be happy for them. That's a good sign. Yeah. So you're not like terrified to like see them out partying on Instagram or something. Cause the first couple months after a breakup, like I cannot look at somebody's Instagram. Like they could literally post a photo of a fish and I would be like, Oh, the fish, like, and a girl was giving them head as they took that photo. You know what I mean? Like, I will think myself into, like, an absolute wormhole. But I think that's a good measuring stick, right? Like, can you be legitimately happy to see them with someone else? Yeah, and a lot of times we lie to ourselves saying, no, like, I can be our – we can be friends. Like, we're different. Like, um, but then we're lying to ourselves because deep down inside there's, like, this little bit of hope. Um, yeah. Yeah. God, once again, everything you say is so profound. I'm just so happy that you're out here making content because it, it – it's a real boost to the world. I mean, I don't I don't know if I'm boosting the world with talking about celebrity threesomes and stuff <laughs> like that, but you're doing a great service. I'd love for you to tell everyone about your new podcast that is officially out now um, and kind of a little bit more about what you're working on and what people can see from you this year. Yeah, so it's called Breakup Bootcamp and it's on the seven different stages of healing after a breakup. So each uh, stage has a different strategy. So the strategy you use in shock is gonna be different than the one you use in marketing. And it's like the latest research and science on um, how you can actually heal. But more importantly, like how do you pattern interrupt and how do you use the breakup or this pain from a past relationship and use that as a catalyst for growth so that you can create the healthy love that you desire. I love it. And I love the concept you're doing too of the seven stages. So maybe if you're, you know, day one after a breakup versus four months after it, you can start with the episode that kind of resonates the most for you. Because like you said, all the stages are so very different. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. So excited to talk with you. And uh, I really encourage everyone to please go check out Breakup Bootcamp. You might see uh, a familiar name on there for one of the mm -hmm. later episodes. So go check that out when it's there. Amy, thank you for joining us. And we will see you guys next week for another episode of Fluently Forward. Bye, guys. Thank you.